I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Well, since the United States pulled out of Afghanistan, Utah has welcomed some 900. Afghan refugees. Uh, But now Washington's lack of action has left those refugees in a bit of a state of limbo. So how are Washington, D.C. lawmakers making it more difficult for states like Utah who want to help? How do we actually get past the blockade to actually get something done? Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again. A uh, great piece uh, in Reason Magazine, Reason.com. Fiona Hagen is the assistant editor at Reason. And uh, Fiona, you had a, uh, a great piece that actually had to do with the lovely state of Utah here, that uh, Utah wants to help refugees uh, and some ways government's getting in the way. Break it down for us. Yeah, so thank you for having me, first of all. And it's it's really been a delight to write about Utah again. I lived in Utah for a time and always loved how pro-immigration the state was and how welcoming people were. Uh, so when I went into this story, I kind of identified these two aspects where the federal government was making it difficult for a very generous state like Utah to help refugees and to help Afghan refugees in particular. So on the front end, there's this issue of the actual evacuation. I think a lot of people remember how chaotic the evacuation was in those last few weeks last year. In August, uh, we evacuated over 124,000 people from Afghanistan uh, with our allies, and over 76,000 of them came to the U.S. Tens of thousands of people evacuated in 24-hour periods. Really, really, really dramatic. And that ended up straining a lot of state systems, including Utah's, where these organizations, these refugee resettlement agencies, just didn't have the experience of settling that many people that quickly. It took a really big mobilization of volunteers and of workers in these areas to get people settled, get them into houses, get them connected with resources, etc. And then if we look at the federal government's involvement now, uh, we see this kind of blockade through Congress, right? That first one was more of a White House issue, but now Congress is uh, dragging its feet to a degree in terms of offering a pathway to citizenship or permanent residency for these Afghans. A lot of them came here. About half of the people who came from Afghanistan to here came with a pathway to citizenship by virtue of the specific visa that they had for helping U.S. troops. Uh, But another half of them didn't come here on such a status. They came here on a temporary status called humanitarian parole, which means that Congress has to lay out an adjustment act to get these people to citizenship. Otherwise, their presence in the U.S. is in limbo, and it's hard for them to have any certainty with how they settle here. So those are kind of the two major issues and ones that are definitely affecting people from Afghanistan who are now in Utah. Yeah, and let's, let's dig into those just a, a little bit. Uh, I think it's it's one of those where uh, we have to recognize that, that rule of law and compassion are actually compatible principles. So let's not uh, let's not make this into a fake fight and a false choice as uh, Washington is, is prone to do. 
you mentioned this whole idea of certainty and a path. Uh, those that are here on that humanitarian parole, which we ought to have an act of Congress, Congress to change the name of that. Um, <laughs> I, I think these, <laughs> these are here for humanitarian needs and a host of other things, but I don't think a parole uh, quite fits the bill. Uh, but what is happening? What are the discussions on that front in terms of what Congress can do? Uh, because to me, the, the biggest thing there is to just give someone who's already gone through all uh, the the trauma uh, that they've experienced in being uprooted and, you know, moving halfway across the world uh, to give them some certainty to a path. I think that, again, with everyone, whether it's a DACA recipient or anyone else, if we just have certainty, people can deal with that. Absolutely. And I think it's important to note, first and foremost, that everyone who came here was vetted very, very significantly, very thoroughly mm. on these bases. So nobody who is now living in the U.S. got through without being thoroughly, thoroughly checked. Uh, so Congress, you know, they've laid out this legislation called the Afghan Adjustment Act. It hasn't been introduced as a standalone bill yet. Uh, it was attached to a Ukraine-directed spending bill earlier this year, um, but ultimately, those provisions were stripped. And without it being added onto some kind of omnibus legislation, uh, it's very unlikely for it to pass before the midterms. That's the impression that I've gotten from people in these spaces. And that's a really unfortunate thing because obviously we'll have a new Congress soon. And, uh, you know, any momentum that's been built after seeing all this sympathy and all this outpouring of support for Afghans, uh, some of it's going to be for nothing potentially. And you talk to the people who are filing for asylum now, because that's the next step for a lot of them. If they need an intuitive path to stay, uh, they're going through, you know, court proceedings now, and that's expensive, paying for lawyers if they can't get support from a nonprofit. And, and it really just robs a lot of these families of certainty, of being able to build a career in a certain place, of being able to start an education, of raising children. Uh, so it really affects a lot of levels of society, and it's, it's definitely an inefficiency that affects you know, states like Utah, where you need to fill certain jobs, and there are people who could willingly serve in these jobs. And again, these things are just keeping them from that kind of productivity. Yeah. And just give us just a, a little deeper dive on the uh, the Afghan Adjustment Act, you know, what that is and, and why it continues to, to fail to pass, at least to this point. Uh, and what are you looking as we move forward? Right. So an Adjustment Act, broadly speaking, is uh, something that's directed toward usually a very big group of people who came under emergency circumstances, uh, and it allows them to legally stay here. So, for example, under humanitarian parole, Afghans can stay here for two years. Um, we're already about at the halfway point of that for a lot of these people without a clear answer to what they'll do next. Um, previously, Congress has passed adjustment acts for refugees from Vietnam, people who were airlifted after our involvement in the war there, um, people fleeing communism in Hungary, people from Cuba, and so on and so forth. Um, so these adjustment acts, they're not unprecedented. But with Afghanistan, I think there was a lot of you know, polarization that happened and uh, politics and politicians being politicians uh, saying, well, we don't know actually who we brought into the country. And, you know, with an increasingly polarized GOP on immigration, Utah really is an exception there. Uh, there is this idea that we don't want to offer mass amnesty. And I think amnesty ends up being a dirty word in these discussions, even though these are people who were directly affected and often uh, kind of helping in our time in Afghanistan. So to me, it makes sense. But to uh, an ever-divided Congress, it's hard to see anything happening quickly. 
Yeah, those uh, friends and uh, allies uh, that we promised we would have their back because they had ours uh, is an important part of that conversation. Fiona Harrigan's the assistant editor at Reason. It's an amazing piece on Reason.com. And it's so good. We're going to stay with the conversation. Uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll stay with the conversation and the questions. We'll have Fiona tell us some of the things that she's learned as she researched a little bit about Utah, why it is working here, and why we need to make sure Washington stays out of the way enough so that this work can continue. Stay with us. Much more to come on Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. With Lloyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. Inside Sources. Inside Sources with Lloyd Matheson. And we're staying with the question just a little bit longer. We're going to continue our conversation with Fiona Harrigan, of course, assistant editor at Reason, and uh, just did a, a fantastic piece on Afghan refugees and many, of course, that came to the United States and Utah in particular, looking at the challenges that they face, all the uncertainties, places where things work and where things don't, where government sometimes makes it more complicated, less certain, less stable, and what kind of conversations we should be having when it comes to immigration reform in general. And uh, Fiona, I want you to pick up, you uh, actually, as part of your reporting, uh, and we'll post this on our uh, social channels today, That uh, just a, an ex- a great piece. And you actually interviewed the uh, the first refugee from Afghanistan to come to Utah. Uh, of course, over uh, 900 followed since then. But uh, what did you find out? What was the experience? It was really fascinating to me. And I, I interviewed this man named Azim, and he had helped the U.S. Uh, for a little bit over in Afghanistan uh, while our country was involved in the war there. Um, and he knew that he wanted to leave Afghanistan at some point, and he always knew that he wanted to end up in Utah. And I, I asked him why, and he said, well, Utah values mirror a lot of my values. It's a clean place. It's family-oriented. I want to be somewhere with good economic opportunity, and I, I love the mountains because they remind me of where I come from. Uh, and he really just set his mind to it. So when it came time for him to actually come to the U.S., uh, him being the first to settle in Utah, he didn't have a single bad thing to say about the entire state. And I think part of that is just how grateful you have to be after escaping the circumstances he did. Uh, he was trapped within the airport because he was working air traffic control. And when the Taliban took over and crowded the gates, he got on an evacuation flight as soon as he could. Uh, he is just endlessly grateful and is already working in refugee resettlement uh, offices now here He's volunteering to help other people like him, not just Afghans, people from all sorts of dire circumstances across the world. And he's gainfully employed. All of his family members are as well. And he's raising a son here already. So he's really just taken to it and involved himself in the entire community and is already giving back, which has been fantastic to see. Oh, that's awesome. And that is uh, so often the case. I, I We often look at the front end and uh, the investment of time and resources and energy, and I think we often forget the incredible value and the great contribution uh, that refugees uh, have made in our community here in the state of Utah and around the country. Uh, such an important point to, to raise there. What were some of the other things that stood out to you as you looked at uh, the process uh, not just for this refugee, but for many of the others in terms of the, the navigation of it. Why does it work in Utah? Uh, what were some of your, of your observations there? I think a big part of why these people settled so easily in Utah specifically is because so many of these benefits are specific to Utah, right? And even the people involved in immigration work in Utah say 
I don't know what my work would look like somewhere else. There's just so much that's going right here. Uh, and I think a big part of it is obviously the religious history, the way that Utah was originally settled by people from the East Coast, uh, you know, fleeing religious persecution and political persecution. And that really speaks to a lot of refugees, too. And I think there's this very deep empathy and almost a recent memory associated with a lot of what uh, early LDS pioneers had to go through and how they forged their path. Um, you hear a lot of that in the way that everyone from a volunteer to the governor himself will talk about refugees and wanting to bring in immigrants, saying they enrich in our lives. And we remember when we were in the same position. Obviously, there's a lot more that's really, really fantastic. Economic opportunity is just great. Uh, in Logan, up in Cache Valley, nobody there who came from Afghanistan is making less than $20 an hour. They're all just really flourishing and, and really, really successful already very quickly. Um, all of that and, and, you know, this accepting level of society has just spoken to every refugee I've spoken to. They feel very comfortable and they already have wide social networks. So I think everything from the societal aspects to the historical aspects to the economic policies, uh, all of that really translates to an accepting home. And speaking with the highest ranking refugee officials in the state, they told me we didn't face any pushback. There were no big protests that you saw in other states. Uh, legislation to help these people has passed unanimously or nearly unanimously. And that's just really stunning given how polarizing this could be elsewhere. Yeah, true. And it was it was so polarizing in, in many parts of the country. And uh, you mentioned this whole idea of, of these networks and this social capital uh, that I think is is so vital. Uh, I think it is one of the reasons Utah has continued to be one of the most upwardly mobile uh, places on the planet is that these uh, not just the, the resources in terms of dollars and cents and those kinds of things, but that access to other people uh, and connections that go with it uh, are really part of the uh, the secret sauce there, I think, for the state. And uh, as you observed it, as you watched it uh, really play out for many of these refugees, uh, was there anything that stood out for you in terms of, oh, if we could just get the national leaders to take a look at that or to adopt that kind of approach, uh, that would make a difference on the on the federal level? I think there are a couple of things that could help, at least nationally, right? I think one of Utah's big advantages is volunteerism and just how many people volunteer their time and their energy and their emotional capital and their, you know, furniture and home-cooked meals for the refugees who come to the state. That's really transformative, and that is, I think, a really important addition to what's being done at the state level to welcome people from a policy perspective. Uh, it shows these refugees that they're actually welcome and that their neighbors want them there. And it really helps them gain their footing in those early days. Um, apart from that, though, I think it's really important for all of us to realize outside of Utah, we're all descendants of refugees and immigrants, too, in our own ways. Pretty much everyone here came from somewhere else, somewhere up their line. And Utah is really, really good about being conscious about that and remembering it. You know, I remember my friends reenacting certain treks and, and pioneer journeys as kids. And that's something that's really, really critical to keep it in your immediate memory. I think once we tell ourselves that and remind ourselves of that, uh, it's much, much easier to lend a helping hand and to extend a welcome to these vulnerable people. Yeah. And then finally, as you uh, as you look at it from a policy standpoint, uh, if, if there were one starting point, again, we often end up, you know, having these big arguments over things that are just so far out. Uh, there, There is 
common ground, I think, to be had for sure on so many of these things. Uh, if, if we were building out the, the right model uh, back in the House or the Senate, uh, where would you start in, in terms of policy? I think in terms of policy, you know, getting away from everything that still needs to be done for the Afghans who are here, just for a second. I think the thing that really needs to be done is to make sure that we have immigration systems in place before emergencies enter our radar. Um, There were so many steps that we could have taken to streamline the way we evacuate people, where it wouldn't have been this emergency situation that both strained state actors and then left a lot of people waiting for a lot of answers. I think getting that work out of the way on the front end is really, really critical and something that politicians in Washington should be thinking much more critically about at this point. Uh, fantastic. Great insight, uh, Fiona. We appreciate you giving us a little extra time today. The The piece is fantastic. Reason.com. You can check that out. We'll post it as well. Uh, Fiona, great perspective, great insight uh, on a real crucial conversation when it comes to these refugees. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. All right. Again, that's Fiona Harrigan from the read from reason. She's the assistant editor there. And uh, her piece is, is a great read uh, and a deep dive and a really interesting look uh, from someone who has spent some time in Utah, lived in Utah for a little bit and uh, now is back East uh, working for reason and her perspective in terms of why, it works. Why this has been so successful and so much more successful than so many other places around the country when it comes to refugees, Afghan refugees in particular. Uh, and there's just some great lessons in there. And it's it's once again, it's the Utah model playing out uh, that we have an upwardly mobile uh, society. We have a, a place that has a government that has a fairly light touch. Uh, some people would say it should be lighter. Uh, but it's a pretty light touch uh, regulatory regime, so it allows businesses to thrive and grow and innovate. Uh, we we have a robust uh, business community, and we have robust institutions of civil society uh, where businesses give back to communities. They're engaged in communities. We have civic and religious organizations that are engaged and involved and in giving back, and, and that recipe works. And when you add to that recipe a sense of understanding in terms of what refugees might be going through, and if you add to that an attitude of recognizing that these refugees are not liabilities to be managed by some agency, they're human beings with infinite potential to be to be developed, then everything changes. And... As Fiona rightly pointed out, the refugees coming feel that and they feel their own potential and they feel that people have confidence in them. And then I love what she pointed out uh, from Azim, who was the first Afghan refugee to come to the state of Utah, uh, that he's already giving back. Uh, He's not just surviving. He's not just maintaining. He's building a life. He's living a version of his dream and raising a son and contributing to his neighborhood and community. Uh, that, that takes culture. Uh, and for all that we don't want to talk about culture because that creates all the culture war conversation, uh, it actually is a crucial part of the conversation that we often skip because sometimes we don't like to acknowledge that, you know what, culture matters. Values matter. And they form a society. And I maintain for businesses, 
culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, culture wins the day on so many things, and I think it's working here in the state of Utah as it relates to refugees. All right, we'll step aside for bottom of the hour news. When we come back, we'll pick it up with the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, who wants you to drive an electric car. But what does that actually do in terms of oil? Let's talk about it coming up next. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.